It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no. But angel hair pasta, Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Regular gum is boring, but Icebreaker's ice cubes are different. They're fancy. Icebreaker's gum has flavor crystals, which deliver a rush of cool, refreshing flavor. Plus, they are delightfully cube-shaped, making them soft and satisfying to chew. Icebreaker's Ice Cubes Gum. Ooh, fancy. Pick up your favorite flavor today. Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life. 100% pure quality water. Refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match! Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket with me, Simon Hughes. And me, Simon Mann. And a Merry Christmas to all of you again. I wonder if you're still devouring the remnants of your turkey. No. I'm not. You're not. Well, you're not. And I'm not. I'm not because we didn't actually have turkey. We decided to make trout wellington instead, which is a sort of bastardization of salmon or beef wellington but we had trout instead actually it was really nice now of course you would have been eating nut roast for about four days until it was coming out of your ears a couple of days of nut roast yours because of course it's christmas day for nut roast and you can't eat all the nut roast on your own where well everyone else is eating turkey so a bit of follow-up on boxing day absolutely delicious i would recommend it to everyone yes actually i i would as well my brother-in-law is an expert at making uh, nut roast and my sister Bethany Hughes is a, a, a staunch vegetarian so they have nut roast every year so I, I, I'm a sort of nut roast convert actually I think what I'm going to do is get his recipe because he's ex- excellent Adrian at making a nut roast and I'll, I'll post it somewhere on, on Twitter or something at some point because it's something you can have any time of year actually and it's very good for you as well isn't it? Well you can post it to me as well because you're know, always looking for variations on the nut roast uh, menu. Did you have a good Christmas, Yoz? Yeah, no, quiet. A uh, bit of a relatives sort of tour, actually, a tour of the the aged. But uh, you know, good, 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 uh, good spirits all round. So, so fine. You know, enjoyed it actually. What about you? Well, my my favourite bit of the year is always on Christmas Day, and it's at one minute to midnight. And that minute from one minute to midnight to midnight, because you're as far away from Christmas as you possibly can be at one minute to midnight. So it's always my favourite time of the year. But don't you get excited by the presents or anything? Um, You've got everything now, I suppose. (laughs) So it's it's actually quite difficult to give men anything these days, isn't it? Except new pairs of socks. Um, my my wife gave me a lovely raincoat for Christmas, and I'm, I don't say that I don't say that tongue in cheek. It's actually a really nice coat, 
and it's also warm and perfect for the middle of winter, which is the it's got to be the worst time, hasn't it? It gets dark at, at four o'clock, and it makes you think of sunny days, doesn't it? It makes you think of cricket and sunny days, and how much you you miss it, really. And we you know we were in India, uh, we we enjoyed the ashes. And what we're going to do in this podcast is look back over the year and revisit some of our highlights of the year as well, you know, via our our podcast that we've done and we've done many of them over the year we're going to focus on England we're going to talk about our highlights of the year so what do, what do you want to start with yours you can start with England's overall record this year yeah yeah and by the way we're going to hear as well uh, as from us uh, from Ricky Ponting Harry Brook and Trevor Bayliss amongst others who appeared on our podcast this year and most of the time we've been covering England of course apart from at the World Cup where we were we were covering various teams during the tournament. Uh, yeah, England's overall record uh, this year: played forty four, won nineteen, lost twenty three, drawn one in uh, Test match. Obviously, uh, so that's their overall record in all competitions: uh, won nineteen, lost twenty three. That's a win loss ratio of 0.82 for those statisticians amongst you. And it, what it basically means is they've lost more than they've won. Uh, so, you know, disappointing overall, wasn't it? I, I mean, it, it, you, although the Ashes was was an amazing highlight, England probably underperformed as a team, do you think? I, I think they could have. I mean, given a fair wind and perhaps a bit more judicious decision-making and a bit of luck, they could have won that Ashes series 4-1. And you talk about that draw. I mean, that, I think that's the one that, re- you know, in a way, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just a sort of nature getting involved, wasn't it? The, the one draw was that test match at Old Trafford. And we'll look back at that uh, later on. But, I mean, that was a game at, you know, bar, you know, about a day and three quarters of rain at Old Trafford. England would have, you know, cakewalked, wouldn't they? I mean, they, they absolutely hammered Australia in that match, but they were denied uh, by the rain. By the way, here's a question for you. How many cricketers do you think represented England men this year in 2023 in all competitions, in all formats. How many people do you think they picked? Here's my guess. 41. The answer is 63. 63? 63. Over the course of the year? Yeah, it's by far the most in a year that England have ever used. Normally, I mean, your guess of 44 was was a good one. 41. Yeah, it was 41 because, you know, normally it is around the sort of 40 mark. Uh, It went up to 50, I think, a couple of years ago. But this year, uh, the, the the biggest of all, the most of all, 63 cricketers, which means in a way, of course, that the England cap isn't quite as prized a possession or as rare a, a species to have, to own, to put on your wall or whatever, as it would have been once. Even though you go back to the ashes of 1989, England picked 29 players in that just one series, but still they never exceeded the sort of 50 or 60 mark that they had this year. I guess it's 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 a a measure of the the stress and pressure on players the amount of cricket they have to play and also the you know the kind of other demands on the players as well the franchise tournaments and so on meaning you, you often play your second or third 11 in in some tournaments yeah exactly exactly that the the also the divergence of of the, the type of cricket they're playing as well and you know, the difference between 
2020 and, and test match cricket you know, almost not quite but it almost demands you know two separate 11s doesn't it you know straight away and you know one day cricket as well you know part of that you know the players that you might want to play one day internationals but you don't necessarily want to play uh, t20s and then the opportunities they gave players in the west indies the times earlier in the year when they finished a test match in where was it in new zealand and they were playing in bangladesh a few days later but some of those players were you know players they thought they might call on were you know away playing franchise cricket as you said, it's the way the way the game's going, and I suppose it, it, in a way it played against England um, that demand on players because they weren't able or weren't prepared to play their front eleven, their front first choice eleven in those matches at the end of the year, the ODIs at the end of the year before the World Cup, um, which would have been good preparation for the World Cup. But the players had played so much cricket by then, particularly the Ashes, that they needed a break, and I think that was where probably England's. World Cup campaign started to go off the rails because they just never played their first choice, you know, crack eleven um, until they got out to, to to India. Yeah, and they and when they got to India, they had one match that was rained off, and then they played one game, didn't they? The game against India, the warm up game against India was was off. Actually, they played that series against Ireland. They would have been far better off, and they're probably contractual reasons, aren't there, for playing all those one day internationals in September in England? But actually, they probably would have been better off, you know, heading off to India a couple of weeks. Uh, before the first match and playing some couple of one-day internationals out there. One team who did that, I seem to remember, were Australia, who went on to win the World Cup. They had a one-day series against India. So, you know, they didn't start the World Cup particularly well, but they certainly finished it uh, pretty well. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, and they were obviously the team of the year. Let's wind back to February this year, where England were in New Zealand. They'd just played some one day as against South Africa, of course. And there was great optimism then uh, because Joffre Archer played in that series in January in South Africa and bowled brilliantly. And England were thinking, yeah, you know, our our best 11 for one day cricket is coming back together, but it wasn't to be. And then off to New Zealand for a couple of tests. And those losses I talked about, 23 losses over the season, one of those was in Wellington, when England, in rather cavalier fashion, enforced the follow-on against New Zealand, very much against modern custom, and went on to lose the game by one run. That decision, that the follow-on, so defied common sense, I think it made you quite angry. Let's hear a bit of what you said at the time. They've got an ageing bowling attack, they've got a 40-year-old bowler, they've got a 36-year-old bowler, they've got one bowler that can't bowl because he's got a dodgy knee, and then... You know, they've, they've got Ollie Robinson, who's a very good bowler, and they've got Jack Leach, who's a steady left-arm spinner. So they ended up being in the, in the field for 216 overs. 216 overs. All cricketing common sense... You mean sense. in both innings? You mean in both yeah, innings? Yeah, over, over the course of both innings. Yeah, first innings and second innings. So they were in the field for 216 overs with, with two ageing bowlers and a guy who can barely... Well, he's, he's struggling with his, his left knee, can only bowl two overs. So... I, I just don't understand the decision to uh, enforce the follow-on. I just don't, I just don't get it, and and it's costing them the game. And I, 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 it's not hindsight. I can show you. I can show you a WhatsApp message uh, when England enforced the follow-on, which I sent to a friend of mine, which which said, "Don't you know, if you if you enforce the follow-on, no, no, we, we, that's, we that's the way you. to lose." Look, we, okay, we believe you. So this we is not hindsight. Not using... This is not hindsight. No, no. It's just not. We know. It, 
And and it's, but, so you know, what do you want me? What do you want me to say? Do you, you, you doff, it's a, it was an incredible game of cricket. Okay, and in, d- d- does that make cricket the winner? I don't know. I don't know what it makes. It just means that every now and again you get a really exciting game of cricket. And we all know that cricket can be fantastically exciting. It's wonderful drama. Um, people are talking about it. Great. Um, but it, it, it's not England. It wasn't England's intention to make it to make the game exciting. They wanted to win, and they messed up. They messed up. And you're still angry now, probably, are you? <laughs> Ten months on. Well, you, you think back, you, you get philosophical about it. I just think it was. I just thought it was a, a really, really poor decision. And I, I just talking to one or two people in the England team uh, who were involved in that game. I don't think we're that convinced by the decision either. Okay, look, you, you enforce the follow-on. You, it doesn't normally come to you losing the game, does it? It's, it's only happened four times in history, so it's still incredibly rare. But what you do, you get in that position, you're 226 ahead, you just absolutely nail down the opposition. You, you bat again, you score another 200, 250, you set them 450, 500, you win the game by 200 runs, you say, thanks very much for coming, you win the series 2-0, and that, that's what you do. You don't give the, the side, the opposition, a chance to, to win the game. You, 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 know, you, you, you crush them. England dominated the, the series, actually, until that moment. You've got some ageing quick bowlers. Am I just saying what I've just said? I mean, I think you've got some ageing quick bowlers. Uh, you know, you've got one... The, the captain's got a dodgy knee. You, you just put, you just bat again and bat them out of the game. Sim, simple as that. OK, made for the incredibly exciting match. You know, anybody who was there, I think, we, you know, will remember it probably for the rest of their lives. But, OK, and they, if, you want to ex, if you want to excite, that's fine. If you want to win then you, you don't enforce the follow-on. Well, decision-making has certainly been something that's dogged England throughout the year, actually, in various places. The first test of the Ashes, obviously, at Edgbaston, and some of the team selections and decisions at the toss during the World Cup as well. Uh, we'll come to that. Uh, the build-up to the most eagerly awaited Ashes series since perhaps 2005 began in April. Australia, who, of course, hadn't won in England since 2001, had got a good head start in their preparations by beating India in the World Test Championship final at the Oval. I was uh, part of the commentary team, actually, or part of the production team for that uh, match. And I worked quite a bit with Ricky Ponting, an eagle-eyed commentator. He was part of the team. And we talked during that World Test Championship final about the level of detail that Marnus Labuschagne and Steve Smith in particular go into when preparing for a test match. I mean, they all think deeply about the game, but in different ways. I mean, Manus's analysis and what he had to say to me this morning about why he's doing it, and he studied that when Cummins bowls at the MCG, it's a five and a half metre length that hits the top of off stump, and so they do dig deep. It's, um, it's real cricket badgerdom, isn't it? Absolutely, and you can imagine Smith and and Labuschagne together. Yeah. You know, tonight even they'll yeah. sit down tonight and they'll be talking about batting again, and they'll be talking about it tomorrow morning when they get to the ground and how they're going to play in the second innings with his yeah. wicket changing. There'll, there'll be all that sort of stuff going on, but look. Trust me, I mean, analytics is such a big part of the game now. Every Indian player will be doing it. You know, but you don't, don't think Virat's not, you know, he's just not going out and standing there and, and reacting to the ball. There's a lot of homework that goes into getting every one of these players prepared for an IPL game or for a test match. Did you, would you have liked that a level of data when you were playing or are you quite pleased in a way that you weren't sort of saturated with it? No, we can, I do like it. I like it now. I mean, being a coach and being a, an, an analyst and a commentator, you, you want all this stuff because you're continually learning then and you're learning something new and then you know for me to be able to learn something 
like that from Manus today, next time I go and coach, I can coach that as well. Or next time I go and coaching and I learn something from the players there, I can go and talk about it in the comms box. So both my roles now work really well together. But I mean, he, Do you think an- you've learned a lot more about the game actually since you've retired? 100%, yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the stuff that I, I know now that I can talk about now, I wish I'd have known a long time ago. Um, you know, what Manus have- did, what Manus has done today mm. and how many times I got LBW through my career, there was things that I could have done and changed that would have helped there. Of course, I would have tried it, but um, I wasn't smart enough. So you, would, you, but you, so you could have got 15,000 test runs, but at the same time, it might have clouded your mind. And maybe one of your qualities was, and maybe, you know, qualities of many batsmen is that their mind isn't clouded. No, that's, that's also true. Um, you know, like all of us, we all bat better when we've got nothing inside of our head, no premeditations, you're keeping your mind clear and you're, you're watching the ball and you're reacting to the ball, that's when we all bat at our best. But I guess Manus, with what he's doing, he's able to make that move out of his crease but then still be able to keep his mind clear. So it's he's, you know, I think what Manus and Smith does, and Smith does this better than anybody, he just takes away any risk. He, eliminate, he eliminates any risk and play, formulates a game plan. And you've seen this innings. Didn't take one risk. Didn't get out of second gear. Just waits on the bowlers, you know, knows his game, trusts his defence, eliminates risk um, and doesn't make mistakes. So then he can put those that formula together, you're going to make a lot of runs. Australia winning the World Test Championship final. It was actually Travis Head who was the, the player really to the fore and that was a, a portent of what was to come in a way. It was a great year uh, for him. Labuschagne and Smith actually in the Ashes, they didn't dominate as much as perhaps we expected uh, they would, but they, they triumphed in the World Test Championship final by... 209 runs, a crushing win really against India. So arrived at Edgbaston for the first Ashes test in a very positive mood. All the talk revolved at the time around dismissing the spectre of Basball. Didn't it? Ah, it won't work against us, mate. It's all that sort of, nah, you can't, do, you can't Basball us. But England, well, they, they weren't backing down. Zach Crawley spectacularly rifling the first ball of the series to the cover boundary, to Ben Stokes's obvious delight. The cameras focused on Ben Stokes in the commentary box. And he was sort of, you know, wow, wow, well, what's, what's just happened? And then, later in the day, we went wow again because Ben Stokes declared on 393 for eight with over half an hour left for play on the first day. And Joe Root, 118 not out. Now, it still seems uh, gung-ho, unnecessary now, and it certainly did to us at the end of that first day. I'm talking about the declaration. An extraordinary uh, scenario at the end of the day there when Root was absolutely flaying Nathan Lyon over the top for straight sixes. Suddenly, Ben Stokes declares. Yeah, well, I don't think I was surprised that Ben Stokes had declared because we've seen him do it before. And it looked like the way they were playing. Suddenly, Root was, he got past his 100. He was starting to whack Nathan Lyon for six. I didn't just keep batting. I like... The last time England did this, you know what happened, don't you? They lost the game. In Wellington, when they declared on 435 for eight, Root was also going really well. I just thought, get as many as you possibly can. Of course, see how that pans out as this game uh, goes on. Robinson was playing really well at the other end. I know the new ball wasn't too far away, but yeah, but just keep playing some shots. You want to play shots, fine. It was coming off, wasn't it? Just keep going and see where it takes you. It's possible there are another... 30, 40 runs out there before the close of play. You think back to that famous test match in Adelaide where England had Australia on toast in that game as well. They were 5.50, they pulled out and then they ended up losing the game. True, but I mean, Stokes liked the idea of 
I think he's a sort of uh, almost an advocate of four-day tests, actually. And what he's trying to say is, look, you know, let's just have an innings till the end of the first day. And then th th that old-fashioned tactic we're used to using cricket, get the openers in for five, ten awkward overs at the end of the day's play when the light's fading and the, the, well, the fast bowlers are yeah. really... I agree, if you've got time for ten, yeah. I, I yeah. sort of agree that, ten, twelve. Right. Just say, made that point, because you've got a bit more time. And you know, it's, it's harder for the openers if you've got that distance to, to bat. But when it's only a, a handful of overs, as it was, I, I don't know. I, for me, I'm totally against it. I just get as many as you possibly can. I, you know, who knows? I think they might need as many as they possibly can on this pitch as well. So it was a match of cut and thrust over all that first test, wasn't it? And it came down to the wire. It was a very exciting last day. Pat Cummins managed to rise above the tension to produce a match-winning 44 after the uh, sort of diligence of Usman Khawaja earlier in the day. And the Aussies had gone one up um, uh, at England's customary stronghold of Edgbaston as well. So the Aussies had played by far the better cricket there in the end and certainly at Lords, where... Happy hooking England wantonly collapsed when they replied to Australia's 416. They collapsed from 188 for one to 325 all out. It was a depressing sight, that. Yeah, those who remember it, lots of short balls. Remember, Nathan Lyon was injured. So England could have thought, hold on a second, if we can just tire the Australian attack and just wear them down, then we can really take advantage. But Australia went to the short ball tactic. England said, thanks very much, I'll have a bit of that, and kept finding the fielders. And there we go, that collapsed, 188 for one to 325 all out. And you know the, 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 the word from the England camp afterwards was, you know, what do we want to do, just sort of stand there and be standing targets? It wasn't the most straightforward of pitches, was it? There was It was a bit uneven at uh, that Lord's surface. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy to play on but it, it wasn't easy to pull the ball on I think uh, that was the point anyway looking on you know from the outside it just felt as though England squandered a great position you saw Nathan Lyon limp off you thought this guy is out of the series there's no way he's, he's coming back to bowl of course he did bat in that test match that famous scene of him sort of limping down the the staircase at Lords quite early you know to prepare to, to come out anyway he was out of the series it just felt England you know, squandered a, a great opportunity. Australia batted well, you know, 416 in the first innings. You know, England had a poor first day of that game. It always felt as though they were sort of playing catch-up in that game. But, you know, they did get mm. to 188 for one. And, they you know, they did seem to give themselves a chance. But, I mean, incredibly, though, I mean, they, they weren't that far off from winning the game. They needed 371 to win. And then... We had one of the flashpoints of the series. It's actually generally played in a pretty good spirit, wasn't it? It wasn't that sort of snarling old Ashes series that we've sometimes seen in the past. But then we had that flashpoint, Johnny Bairstow wandering out of his crease, thinking the ball was dead and was run out by Alex Carey. Caused an uproar, extraordinary and unsavoury outbursts in the long room. No defending that, actually. Absolutely no defending that, the, the reaction from some of the, the members in the long room. But I think we both thought that Johnny Bairstow could have actually been much cannier in that situation, that in a way that he brought it on himself. I'm sure I've played in club matches where that sort of incident has happened. And if someone's dozy enough to walk out their ground, you think, well, you know, yeah. often it's in the middle of the over or something, you know, or someone, someone just doesn't, doesn't realise they're out of their ground. So, you, you know, it, is, it does feel legitimate. What, what Besto was thinking, I think, is this. 
is that he sort of, he, you say he didn't tap down, he didn't tap down, you're right. What he did, he sort of scratched with his back foot as if to say, right, that's the last ball, the over. I'm just sort of making my mark behind the line. You know, I'm, I'm now going to wander up the pitch, I presume, to have a chat or, or do some gardening. I mean, my, my feeling with all this, and it's, it's similar to the, the run out backing up, um, which I think is a bit different from that, mind you, but similar to that is you don't give a... You don't give anyone anything. You you, you that that you stay in your in behind your line because that because the, otherwise there's danger. So you've always got to be aware of that, and and that and that's sort of the bottom line. You can't blame any you can't blame anyone else for for the situation if you don't actually defend yeah. your own wicket. No, sure, and and I, I mean the convention is in these situations to if you want to go out of your ground is to just indicate to the wicketkeeper yeah. or the slip or whatever. Just say. All right, all right. Am I all right to go yeah, out of my ground? Yeah, Just right. a little hand wave. Yeah, you're all right, right. And then you can do it. Yeah. And then clearly, any kind of attempt to run you out is mm. is illegitimate. Yeah. But he didn't do that. He just wandered out without the acknowledgement of the of the wicketkeeper first, and so that's where he was silly. Best was not trying to run at all. He was, you know, there was, he was there was no advantage whatsoever. It was just one of those moments. And he thought, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? You just sort of almost I don't know switched off. Mm. And I, I said to Brendan McCullum afterwards, I said, you know, what was Johnny Bairstow's reaction when he went back into the dressing room? He said he was, sort of, you know, he was a bit sort of nonplussed, really, a bit bemused by the whole thing. Actually, reflecting on that uh, moment, it, it was I was side on uh, in the grandstand when it happened, and I immediately thought he's out. He's he's got to be out. He's fair enough. He's wandered out of his crease. He might have just tapped his toe in, but you know, it, it was it was dozy cricket by Bairstow. Of course, it caused this massive uproar, and I, there's there's quite a nice scene uh, on one of our other cricketing colleagues' podcasts, the Grade Cricketer, uh, where they interviewed both uh, Mitchell Marsh and David Warner and Steve Smith after the event, sort of a couple of months later, uh, and said, "What? Well, tell us what was the scene in the Lord's lunchroom, the dining room, uh, after that moment, sort of 20, 20 minutes after it happened, it was the lunch interval. And um, they were very funny about it, actually, because uh, Bearstow, the Aussies have sat down in that small dining room at the back of the pavilion having their lunch, and Bearstow was a bit late upstairs, probably still absolutely fuming, sat in the dressing room, and he came storming into the, the dining room. The Aussies were, were in the middle of their lunch, and a couple of them looked up, and Bearstow sort of sat down, absolutely steaming, and eventually he looked up and stared at, across at the Aussies' table and his eyes met David Warner, who was a former colleague in the Sunrisers Hyderabad team, actually. They had a, forged a brilliant opening partnership there in the IPL a couple of years ago. Uh, so, you know, they get, they get on pr- pretty well, or they, or they did. Um, and and Bearsa sort of stared at, at Warner and basically said, well, are you happy about that then? And basically Warner said, yes very straight-faced, and two or three of the other Aussies sort of had, with mouthfuls of food almost spluttered their food all over the table because they, 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 they were trying to suppress massive laughter. And just at that moment, Sky elected to play a, an actual you know, highlight clip of that moment on the screen in the dining room. So that just added to the, the sort of mirth of it. And Bairstow soon after was stormed out without any lunch. <laughs> so uh, I suppose that kind of put the whole thing into perspective. And the Aussies actually found it quite funny. It wasn't funny, but it sort of was a, a moment in which England were a bit negligent. And I think the Aussies probably did the right thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you can argue, you can argue whether Pat Cummins should have 
uh, called Johnny Bairstow back and just sort of seen the moment. You can you you can argue that. I mean, I think I might have done that if I'd been Australia's captain. I absolutely no issue with Alex Carey throwing the ball at the stumps, though. I think that was absolutely fine. You, you know, that's what you do as a wicketkeeper. Although strangely, the reaction to the whole incident, you know, from not just the members but the crowd as well, I think it had an effect on Alex Carey, and he's he's not been quite the same player since and of course he was eventually he was he was dropped from Australia's uh, World Cup team early on in the competition Josh Inglis played he was never he certainly wasn't the same player in the series you know he, he struggled throughout the series and I think it really did you know hit him quite hard and but it's also worth bearing in mind and I'm not forgetting that on that day Ben Stokes played one of the the great test innings one of the great test innings in defeat actually I was, I was looking back at the stats of the, the two games the Lords game and then the Headingley game at Lords England need 70 needed 70 to win with four wickets left lost at Headingley they needed 70 to win with four wickets left and won that that moment when they needed 70 at, at Lords was the moment Ben Stokes was out and with him you felt went England's chance of of winning the game because but they did get over the line at, at Headingley thanks to uh, Harry Brook and Chris Wokes and also Mark Wood at the end but I mean Stokes that day was it was a phenomenal innings but he needed uh, basically he needed to get a double hundred for England to win the game a bit like Glenn Maxwell in that World Cup match uh, l- later in the year he needed to get a double hundred. For Australia to win that day against Afghanistan and I think Stokes needed a double but he wasn't quite able to do it but it was still a, a stunning and some of that hitting after the after the Kerry incident and Bairstow incident was just phenomenal. Yeah it was uh, and it actually suckered Australia into bowling one side of the wicket to him just into his arc and it was only when they realised what he was doing was hitting almost all his sixes over mid-wicket to the downside of the ground towards the mound stand uh, which is slightly shorter boundary as well. And when they realised that and bowled outside off stump from the pavilion end, forcing to hit it up the hill, that's when he got out. Uh, but it was certainly a heroic uh, effort by uh, Stokes at Lords again. Uh, so not quite uh, delivering what uh, it did in the World Cup final in 2019, but still it was amazing to watch. Moving on to Headingley, of course, for the third test, it was the belated introduction of Mark Wood and Chris Wokes that really turned the tables on the Aussies and got England back into the series. Woods fast bowling, I mean, I, I love Mark Wood. I and mean, what a character, what a fantastic uh, sort of ambassador he is for the game. But for uh, cricket generally and the village cricket that he passionately supports back in Ashington and, and the kind of the spirit and the community that it, that it represents, um, his fast bowling has been a revelation over the last couple of years. And it's actually, I watched that first spell he bowled at Headingley uh, side on in the crowd because there was a that big build up wasn't there before the test or you know as we came into the test match because of all that furore around the Bearstow wicket at Lords and you, you expected the the whole of the Western Terrace to come out but you know shouting and screaming at the Aussies but actually it all went a bit quiet because the Aussies came out to bat first instead of uh, being out to, to coming out to field so the, the moment was sort of deflated. But really, Wood revved it up with this fantastic opening spell. And when I was standing side on in the Western Terrace, I mean, I've never seen a keeper stood so far back to take the ball. Bairstow was halfway back to the boundary at the football stand end, the new stand end, and taking it above his head. I mean, absolutely phenomenal spell. I think it's the fastest spell of four overs that has ever been produced by an England fast bowler. Every ball over 91 miles an hour. He took his five wickets. Uh, Chris Wokes supported him superbly at the other end and England got back into the series with a, with a victory there. Interestingly, it was an Aussie 
who first had the biggest or had has had the biggest influence on Woods bowling, Trevor Bayliss, when he coached England from 2015 onwards and managed to get a great rapport going with Wood. And we interviewed Bayliss about how he'd help convert Woody into a serious and consistent international quick bowler. You are obviously good at identifying other characteristics in players or what they lack. And Mark Wood tells a great story about coming to you, I don't know, 2017 or something and saying, you know, what more can I do to improve? And you said, maybe you need a bit more mongrel. Yeah. And we found that quite interesting. Just explain mongrel and whether you can see that in him now. Um, it, well, I think if you watch yeah, the Ashes and a lot of the short balls um, that he bowled, you know, he wasn't afraid of you know, trying to... Uh, not necessarily intimidate the uh, the batter, I suppose. Uh, that, that message was actually in Sri Lanka. We're on a tour of Sri Lanka. Um, and I can't remember whether he got dropped or we didn't pick him. Um, and he was he was bowling in the nets. And I thought, well, he just looks like he's uh, going at about half pace here in the nets. And I thought for a guy that's trying to get into the team or stay in the team, you know, that he should have been, yeah, running in and bowling as, as quick as he could and trying to show the captain and the rest of us and the coach and the selectors that, you know, he wanted to play badly. Um, but it wasn't like that. So, yeah, after that, I said, you know, you, I, you've got to, got to show a bit more mongrel, which he, he, I think he was then selected on a, a Lions tour to the UAE or South Africa or somewhere. Um, and I said to him, look, you, you've, when you go there, what you've got to do at practice is uh, because I, when I spoke to him, he actually went back and bowled at, in the nets flat out. Like it actually affected him. He went back and, and did it, um, but it didn't change our mind. I mean, he wasn't going to be, he wasn't selected for that match. Um, but the message was to go and intimidate your teammates, show them that you mean business, that you're, you're a big fast bowl that can intimidate uh, the batters. And he, and, you know, the message came back from the coaching staff in that. Uh, yeah, asked what, what did you say to him? He said bowling like the wind in the nets and sticking, you know, putting it up the boys in the nets. So, I mean, that's what you want from your fast bowler. If you're intimidating your teammates, you can certainly intimidate uh, the opposition batters. So that's Trevor Bayliss talking about uh, Mark Wood. W- one man who played a hand in that turnaround at, at Leeds, and I mentioned him uh, briefly, Harry Brook. Match-winning innings, really, 75, certainly not overawed by the Ashes hype. 1,280 runs in the calendar year, 32 matches, 58 innings, averaged 53 in eight tests he played. We interviewed him just after he'd made an astonishing 41-ball 100 in the 100. And typical of all batters, his greatest thrill was actually getting a bowl at Steve Smith in the Ashes, something he says England had planned all along. Because we went on a golf trip up to Scotland and we'd had a few drinks and Stokesy and, and Baz were sat next to each other and they just went rookie hogging a ball at Steve Smith as soon as he comes out to bat. So <laughs> I kind of knew it was going to happen, but I didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't really actually think they were going to follow through with it. And then he took me the ball and I was yeah, and I was steaming in down the hill at Edgebacken. I reckon so, you get more thrill out of foxing a batter, like bowling an over to Steve Smith where he can't hit it, than you do hitting a good bowler for six. Yeah, absolutely. It's miles better. Bowling a maiden to Steve Smith's miles better than hitting a six. 
<laughs> He's a breath of fresh air, Harry Brook, isn't he? And I mean, he's obviously a brilliant player as well. He hasn't quite delivered in the ODIs that England were hoping he would, having been piloted into the team at the last minute at the World Cup. But I mean, what a talent and what a great attitude he has to the game. And he's always smiling as well. And you can hear it in his voice, actually. Even when he speaks, there's a a smile never far away. So uh, I think a long and very, very successful career for him in all formats, presumably, as long as he doesn't get burnt out. NordVPN is the fastest virtual private network out there. One click and your online privacy is protected and it's an open sesame to a new world of content and opportunity. So when I was at the Cricket World Cup in India, getting thoroughly depressed covering England, I used NordVPN to watch England at the Rugby World Cup in France instead. Until, well, England got knocked out of that as well. Although, of course, they did reach the semi-final. But also, you quite like NordVPN, Simon, too, don't you? Well, when you go abroad, yeah, you get your VPN on. You're doing, you know, you, you're still running your life, aren't you, from from abroad, and also when you're home as well. You know, when you're away from home, you put your VPN on and protect all your, you do banking, whatever, protect all your all your data. So yeah, that always goes on for me as well. And you can switch your virtual location to access cheaper flights, hotels, or other deals wherever you are in the world, all on the NordVPN app, which costs the same per month as a cup of tea. To grab our huge discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash AIC. Our code will also give you four additional months for free on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So visit nordvpn.com slash AIC to find out more and open the door to a galaxy of content. After the break, we'll continue on our review of the year with the ashes beautifully poised at 2-1 to Australia. And just to correct myself from earlier, England have actually used 63 different players in all formats since 2021, not just this year. It was 41 this year, 50 in 2022 and 63 since the beginning of 2021. Chronic migraine is 15 or more headache days a month, each lasting four hours or more. Botox, onabotulinum toxin A, prevents headaches in adults with chronic migraine. It's not for adults with migraine with 14 or fewer headache days a month. It prevents, on average, eight to nine headache days a month versus six to seven for placebo. Prescription Botox is injected by your doctor. Effects of Botox may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness can be signs of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Side effects may include allergic reactions, neck and injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Don't receive Botox if there's a skin infection. Tell your doctor your medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. Ask your doctor and visit BotoxChronicMigraine.com or call 1-800-44-BOTOX to learn more. Regular gum is boring, but Icebreaker's ice cubes are different. They're fancy. Icebreaker's gum has flavor crystals, which deliver a rush of cool, refreshing flavor. Plus, they are delightfully cube-shaped, making them soft and satisfying to chew. Icebreaker's Ice Cubes Gum. Ooh, fancy. Pick up your favorite flavor today. 
there was some fabulous cricket in the Ashes series. I think it was a wonderful series and, and so many highlights. I think from an England perspective, I think the highlight, though, was the second day at Old Trafford. So England were 2-1 down. There was this dodgy weather forecast at the back end of the game. Australia on the first day, 299 for eight at the close of play. A middling sort of score, not really going anywhere, not closing the door on England, not taking control of the game. But on that second day, I think that was the day when all those sort of feelings about, ah, you, you can't basball us, mate. And there's been a bit of comment since, hasn't there? Oh, yeah, we didn't see basball uh, during the Ashes. Well, I think that's baloney. I think, we, I think we did see it. And I think we definitely saw it at Old Trafford on that second day when England made 384 for four in 72 overs. England scored at 5.3 runs per over. And Australia, you know, a, a good Australian bowling tack, a very good Australian bowling tack, albeit without Nathan Lyon, was on its knees, didn't know what to do. Uh, Pat Cummins had a wretched day as Australia's captain. He's had a fantastic year, World Test Championship, great IPL deal, winning the World Cup. But that day, he had absolutely no answer whatsoever. Zach Crawley made his 189. You know, there are other half centuries in the England middle order as well. Brooke was in, involved, Root and Stokes. And England totally dominated and actually, I think, demoralised Australia that day. And of course, if the rain hadn't come, you know, there was not enough play on the final two days for England to force victory. You know, England would have won the game and gone to the Oval 2-2. And, I, you know, I'm sure Australians were praying for rain, hoping it rained and the game you know, didn't go to its natural conclusion. But it would have been a fantastic climax to the series, wouldn't it? To go to the Oval 2-2 with a, a winner-takes-all decider. Yeah, it would. And it was mesmerising, actually, watching the, the total demoralisation of the, of the Australian fielders in that uh, sort of second day of the game. Um, they just looked absolutely helpless in, in the wake of Zach Crawley and other batters the way they pummeled them all over the place. I actually got right up into the top of the stand, that part, what they call the party stand at Old Trafford, stood right at the back there, so high up. Mm. And it, it, was, it, it, was, it was a party, actually, that day. People were loving it. The beer snakes were, were growing and growing and growing and people were cheering every boundary. And it was, it was an extraordinary domination by England. Um, one other little feature of one of those days' play, actually, was a 30-year commemoration of the ball of the century, 1993, Shane Warne to Mike Gatting. And uh, during the summer, IG, our sponsors of the, of, of the Ashes series, uh, had actually installed uh, the, the, the batting cage and virtual versions of some of the great deliveries bowled in Ashes history. And one of those balls, of course, being Shane Warne's ball of the century. And they got Mike Gatting to come in and face a virtual version of the ball that dismissed him at Old Trafford in 1993. And it was, he, he, he was quite game, actually. He had a go. He faced it about four or five times. Didn't hit too many, but kind of got a sense. At least he didn't get out to any of them, actually, this time. And it, it brought back memories for him of you know, what it was like facing that ball. So we had him on the podcast just turning his mind back 30 years to what that moment was like. Certainly the thing I remember about the old Trafford thing was that you could hear it fizzing out of his hand. You know, he literally heard it fizzing. You know, you could hear it come out. You know, I didn't know what to expect. As a batter, you're sort of... One, I was looking to see what sort of, whether it was a leg break or not. And I, I, was, <laughs> I knew it was a leg break. And it was second day of a test match, so you weren't expecting it to turn that much. So I was, well, I was worried about it bowling around my legs because he started it fairly straight, as, as as AB told him to. So he bowled it middle and leg, but because he got so much 
revolutions on it, it started to drift in. So by the time it had pitched, it had pitched outside leg stump and it gripped and it then turned. And, you know, I'm quite a wide person to get past. And I thought I was sort of worried about it getting round the back. But as somebody said, it got too big an arse. It wouldn't have got past my arse. But that's besides the point. But in all in all seriousness, you, you, you know, I thought I'd got everything covered. And it, it missed the bat. But it, it'd be interesting to see what sort of angle it had to go at to actually hit hit the top of the bale as it did. It almost had to pitch in only one place it could pitch to hit the top of the off bale and miss all my body as well. Well, the first thing I heard was Ian Healy asking me to leave because I was out in the nice way that he, they do. And I saw this one bale on the floor. And I honestly thought for a, for a, for a brief second that Heels in his, in his haste to get back because it spun so quickly and, and so much, he might have just you know, sort of knocked the, knocked the stump and one, or just one of the bowels fell off because you normally hear it hit the stump. And then I sort of looked at the umpire and then Heels politely asked me to leave again. It was just one of those sort of surreal moments. I don't think even Heels could believe what had happened. I'm sure most people who love cricket can remember exactly where they were when Shane Warne bowled that delivery to Mike Gatting. I wonder if in the future whether people will remember exactly where they were at the ground, whatever, watching on television, listening on the radio, whatever, you know, wherever they were in the UK, Australia, uh, following the game from around the world, when Stuart Broad did what he did at the Oval as England tied up the series at 2-2, hitting his last ball in Test cricket for six and then taking a wicket with his final ball in Test cricket as well. You know, memorable end to the summer for England to come back from 2-0 down. You know, no mean feat in an Ashes series to draw it 2-2 and Stuart Broad to go out in that glorious fashion at the Oval. Yeah. You know who the only other person was who's ever done that, hit their last ball for six in a Test match and taken a wicket with their last ball? And actually, it was someone I played with, in fact, Wayne Daniel who played for the West Indies and Middlesex in the in the 80s. He was a seriously fast bowler and a totally hopeless batsman. But um, by some miracle, he hit his last ball in Test cricket for six and also took a wicket with his last ball. Played pr- not enough Test cricket, actually. But Ten Test matches he played. Yeah. Ten Test matches. I mean, you know, if, he'd, if he'd been... Pl- you know, played for any other country, he probably would have played 80 test matches, wasn't he? He was, he was a serious handful. Yeah, he was. He was incredibly fast. And it was it was to my great benefit and, and fortune that I was able to bowl at the other end to him because batsmen were on their knees, you know, jelly kneed, couldn't could hardly stand up after facing him. So they'd, they'd kind of give their wicket away to me um, quite often as a result uh, because they were totally shell-shocked. So, you know... An amazing end, a fairy tale end for Stuart Broad, uh, walking off into the sunset with 604 Test wickets and finishing that 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 last day. I was actually again in the crowd, in fact, uh, as he took his final wicket. Everyone was going absolutely mental when he did what he did. God knows who writes his scripts, but it was an amazing finish. And that, that we had a bit of time afterwards to consider the series overall, and this is how we assessed it. Well, I must admit, I thought in the end, two-all was a fair result. I thought England played the better cricket in the last half of the series, but Australia sneaked those first two victories, and then obviously the washout at Old Trafford England were dominating. But, you know, who knows what may have happened. So I think in the end, I I think it would have been been skewed if Australia had won this test and and eventually won the series 3-1. I think that wouldn't have reflected the balance between the sides. What do you think? 
Um, I think England will be kicking themselves a little bit privately that they haven't won the Ashes. I know they've had a week to process that, or a week or so, because you know the Old Trafford match was washed out. They were going to win that game. That would have taken it to 2-2, and then it would have been all on the Oval, and you know England subsequently you know, have won the Oval. You can't, I mean, the thing is, the game would have been played a bit differently, possibly, uh, at the Oval. So you can't say, oh, well, just because England won at the Oval, they'd have won the series if they... You know, if they'd won at Old Trafford, it doesn't necessarily work out like that because the psychology of the game is different. But you know, I, I definitely in the back half of the series, England were the strongest. I, I thought they should have won Edgbaston. I thought that was a, you know they they made too many mistakes. When they look back, that's the match that really got away from them. I thought Lords Australia were the better side, and Ben Stokes, you know, nearly played what you know what well, did play one of the great Test innings and nearly pulled off a, a miraculous England victory again England chasing a big score and it just shows you how difficult it is to do that and we've, we've seen it here at the Oval. What was it like you were down there at the presentation at the end there Yoz it was straight over the second series in England in a row Australia have lost the last Test match therefore have failed to win the series but they but they have to sort of pose with the urn or replica urn and a, you know the crystal urn as well and the and there was you know, the two captains shared the trophy. They were sort of standing for a photograph of the trophy. So Australia sort of had to grin for a photograph, of having retained the Ashes, having just lost a Test match. You know, it's a sort of it's a strange old feeling. Yeah, and it's not the first time, as you say, that happened in 2019 as well. And it, it is a strange feeling. I think the uh, the feelings that the emotions were quite muted uh, down on the boundary there at the end. Uh, the Aussies stood there with their green caps on, with their baggy greens on, and they all looked very much unified. Uh, and they would have you know, paraded up there for the presentations, but I think they would have felt a little you know, deflated by not being able to actually win the series. And actually, for a lot of their players, the, the likes of Smith, Hazelwood, Stark, uh, Warner, obviously, maybe Kawaja, they won't have another chance to win the Ashes in England. It's another. It's going to be another. It's going to be 26 years that they've not won the Ashes in England by the time the next series comes around. I, th- I like the the fact that Stokes and and Cummins shook hands, you know, privately, uh, sort of in the background uh, before the presentations. I actually captured that on on camera. I'll post that on Twitter. I thought it was a nice little moment there to say, you know, great effort, well played, fair result. I suppose in a way, Yoz, the, the year, the cricket year from an England perspective and possibly an Australian perspective as well was sort of divided up into two, wasn't it? Uh, World Test Championship, Ashes, you know, focus on Test cricket and then on to the World Cup. And we were both there and we witnessed some remarkable things, really. We, we witnessed the dismantling of England's much-vaunted team. And we, we both said, didn't we, before the World Cup that we could see England potentially struggling to reach the semi-finals. I think we both thought that they probably would be okay, but we could also see a dodgy uh, path that they could go down. And actually, in the end, that's the path they did go down. I mean, they, they really struggled in that World Cup, and it was a, a lamentable uh, defence, really. You know, a bit of an all-right-on-the-night sort of attitude to it, you know, as it turned out. And, it, you know, it just was not good enough. And... The other side of it was India dominating the World Cup, playing brilliantly in the group stage, winning every single match and then stumbling at the last hurdle. But in that competition, I think, you know, what, what, what was the actual highlight of the competition? Well, I think it was this. Australia just need five, five runs. You know what's going to happen? He's 195, Maxwell. Go for six to bring up 200 and win the game. Everybody here's on their feet. 
Not only, of course, the incredible Glenn Maxwell innings, but the brilliant Ian Smith commentary as well. That was a, a perfect storm in a way, uh, certainly for the viewers anyway. And it's funny, actually, because I spent quite a bit of time with Glenn Maxwell the day before. He's a very engaging character. He recognises people who are cricket enthusiasts and will talk to pretty much anybody. And he beckoned me over during the net session the day before that match and Talked talk me through his mental preparation and his physical methods of how he practices and so on. And it was, it was fascinating. He, was, he would basically face six balls in the nets, then wander out and chat to me for five minutes, then go back and face another six balls. And he was hitting it to all parts. So, you know, in a way, the, the, the omen was there. He, he had it all the boundaries well in range. And actually that innings, I mean, it defied sort of biomechanics in a way, didn't it? Because he basically barely moved his feet at all. He just stood there and and smote it to all parts. I mean, it was the most incredible innings. Now, okay, if you'd been bowling to him, if you'd been in that Afghan bowling lineup, do you think they still would have won? The, the if I'd been still would have won. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I I would hope that I would have tried to bowl a few more balls outside off stump because yeah. there is this odd thing when you're bowling at someone who's totally dominant you end up sort of almost feeding his strength. And you can't, because you get caught up in the sort of emotion and the adrenaline and everything, uh, you keep thinking, well, he'll miss one in a minute, so I'll keep bowling at the stumps. And actually, what you should do is just bowl it away from his arc, his swinging arc, and then, especially as he was incapacitated with cramp, you know, he wouldn't have been able to get across to a ball outside off stump. He would have sliced it, edged it, dragged it onto the stumps, whatever. But, of course, they kept sort of bowling at the stumps and he kept smacking it into the stands. It was, it was well, I, definitely for me, it was the greatest one-day innings I've ever seen. Mm, yeah, yeah, incredible innings, no doubt about it. But you just wonder about some of Afghanistan's uh, tactics in retrospect. But as you know, as we know, it's a very, it's a much easier game watching from the commentary box than it is being in the the heat of battle on a in a really sultry night in India, where you know, the force is with uh, Glenn Maxwell, and he, you sort of sense that he might, you know, even from quite a distance, you sense he might be able to do something. And of course, the other point about the Maxwell innings was who was at the other end. It was the you know the cricketer of the year really, it was Pat Cummins who you know saw kept his composure and just helped him through. So I mean you know it was a fantastic innings, but it needed someone at the other end to to make it possible as well. Yes, absolutely, and and it, you know it, it sort of in a way it bookended the the, the year for him for Cummins because he started the year well if you cut if you count the start of the year as the ashes of June July. He played and the World a, Test Championship. Yeah, and the World Test Championship. That's true. Yeah, I mean, he he managed to get his all his ducks in a row for that match, and then played a calm innings in that first Ashes Test match to get Australia over the line, and then of course uh, the World Cup final. So uh, taking in, in the end, taking the trophy from Narendra Modi, Prime Minister Modi, who who sort of wandered off uh, almost slightly, uh, slightly rudely actually, and leaving. Pat Cummins sort of standing there almost on his own, uh, holding the World Cup trophy. It wasn't to be, was it, for India in the end? You were at that final in Ahmedabad. And 
it's funny how everything was building up to this sort of inevitability of India winning the World Cup. But what was it like on the day? Well, the thing I remember most about the final, I think, above all, okay, Travis had played magnificent innings and Australia squeezed India when they batted. It was, I think, the silence, the, the silence from the blue wall. They absolutely stunned how you can have a a, a crowd of you know, ninety plus thousand people, ninety five thousand people, so quiet. It was it was eerie. It was it was just something sort of quite strange about it. I mean, and often in a, you know, the opposition supporters will give you enough sort of verbal vocal credit if you like and there was some I mean you know, when Travis Head uh, reached his hundred there was some applause people said that oh it was it was silent it wasn't totally silent when Travis Head reached his hundred there were a lot of people who were silent but there were people who were applauding as well but I think the crowd was stunned and of course I think half the crowd left you know, by the end so the ground was was half full it's a bit like the start of the tournament wasn't it when the ground was half full when England played against New Zealand and so it's also, the tournament ended as it started but it, I th- it was just that eeriness really that it, this was not supposed to be happening it was a it was a dream that was that went horribly wrong uh, for a, you know a very good India side I mean overall they played you know the best cricket well they they certainly dominated the group stage never really looked like losing in the group stage took down New Zealand in the semi-final reasonably uh, comprehensively but then in the final they they lost by six wickets you go back to the start of the tournament the first match I saw in the World Cup was India beating Australia by six wickets with 52 balls to spare and then the last match I saw was the other way around Australia beating India by six with 42 balls to spare they just played the same match but just the other way around I think India would give a lot wouldn't they for it to be the other way around to have lost to Australia in, in their first game and to have taken out the final One key difference between those two games was when India were reeling in the run chase early in the tournament against Australia Coley hit a fairly straightforward catch up to square leg and it was dropped by Mitchell Marsh yeah. and he saw India home but in the final Rohit Sharma hit a much more awkward catch over cover and Travis Head took a brilliant catch diving away to his to his right uh, over his, taking the ball over his shoulder spinning off a, a skewed shot and having to sort of sprawl across one of those advertising mats to keep hold of the ball, which I think he took in only one hand, actually, running back. And that was uh, uh, that, that was probably the first moment that the Indian crowd were hushed. And it was the decisive moment because Rohit Sharma, although he didn't actually finish up as the leading run scorer, he was the man who set the tone for most of India's innings just by going at it like a bullet a gate early on. I mean, just absolutely brilliant assault on every team's bowlers in those first 10 overs and getting the innings going. And then it was plain sailing for the Indian batsman after that. But here, that in that match, the final, departing to that brilliant Travis Head catch. And after then, after that moment, you feel that the Australian bowlers and fielders sort of turned the screw and stopped India from flourishing and gave themselves a fairly straightforward target. Mm. Yeah, the old adage, yours, isn't it? It catches... Uh, win matches. Think about Osama Mir early in the World Cup when he dropped David Warner and it cost him about 150 runs that, that drop at, at mid-on and Australia played against Pakistan in Bengalura. Yeah, you're right. Kohli dropped by Mitch Marsh. Brilliant catch by Head. Made such a, a massive difference. And Australia finishing the year 
Well, they just keep on churning them out, don't they? Whatever you say, Australian cricket's not as good as it used to be, whatever, but they keep churning those uh, trophies out. Fantastic uh, year for them. Yeah. Now, in our podcast, Yoz, we don't just reflect on international cricket and just focus on English cricket. We also have lots of guests on as well. And I have to say, I wasn't involved in this, but I thought one of the, the really nice podcasts uh, during the year was your interview with Ricky Elcock, former fast bowler that played for Worcestershire and, and Middlesex, born in, in Barbados, went on to become an airline pilot and then had some health problems and is trying to fight back from that and wrote a book about his career. And it's a fascinating uh, career. And uh, it's a really enjoyable interview to listen to. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it, we did the interview partly because he sent me the, a rough draft of his book back in about March. It's called Balls to Fly. It's about his life at first as a fast bowler and then as an airline pilot and it, it's actually beautifully written and lots of fantastic detail about his life in Barbados growing up as well as arriving in England uh, as a, a, a sort of 16 year old going to a, a public school and I, I found that bit of his uh, his reminiscence particularly amusing actually. He Here he is coming to England for the first time, never been out of Barbados as a teenager, arriving at Malvern College in Worcestershire where he won a scholarship, a cricketing scholarship, and the only black kid in the school and just the sorts of things that he noticed that he'd never seen before. For me, except myself, when I arrived at Malvern, I, I mean, it was just the most alien thing in my life. I'd never, I'd never seen a remote control. To, I remember the first day sitting watching the telly and it, and it turned to a different channel. And I thought, what magic is that? You know, and it was a remote control. You know, I'd never seen a toaster. I remember, the, you know, one of my schoolmates getting it with the slices of bread and putting it in a toaster. And I'm thinking, why in God's earth would you take a set of good bread and burn it? You know, I'd, <laughs> I'd, never, I'd never seen anything like that. You know, it snowed for the first four terms at Malvern. Um, I'd never seen a train you know, snow, none of those things. So it was really difficult. And of course, being the, the, the only black boy in the school, you know, I, I, people would look at you like you had 12 heads, you know, and because they probably hadn't seen many black people either. Um, and were you treated well? Yes, I, I was treated very well. I mean, you know, the, I don't, in the book, you'll hear the boys call names and stuff like that. I hope people don't judge it by today's standard. These were sort of names that were on banished around the telly at the time. You know, Jim Davison had a character called Chalky. You know, well, of course the boys called you Chalky every now and again. You know, things like that. So I hope people don't judge the book and those things. What I will say is that they actually took me in their arms. I mean, most of the kids there. I had a, a my, the guy that looked after me when I, when I at Malvern, my first few terms at Malvern was a guy called Gary Lee, a South African, and I don't know if my my host master was being particularly ironic about it all. Here was a black kid being looked after by a South African in the eighties, in in the height of apartheid time, and um, and and he did an amazing job. 
So we are coming to the end of the year and coming to the end of our 639th Analyst Inside Cricket podcast. And that's where the story ends. We are not, yes, we are. Of course, we're going to continue. It doesn't end. We're going to go into next year and do plenty more uh, podcasts. We've got to get to a thousand, <laughs> haven't we? <laughs> not next year, but maybe in a couple of years time, we might just uh, tick tick off the four figures. Yeah, well, yeah, keep on going, Yoz. Yeah, might as well. Nothing else to do. Well, as long as we've got listeners, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. I mean, if we start to get no listeners, then maybe we uh, we, we, we yeah. read the race. But uh, at the moment, we're still getting ten to 15,000 listeners per episode, which is uh, a lovely thing. And thank you to all of you for listening. And please, if you're not a regular listener, maybe you'd click the subscribe button or the follow button on your podcast app, and then you'll get the next episode automatically. Yeah, and also we have a sister podcast as well now. Yeah, Storylines. With Melissa Story and Nikki Chowdhury, and they've just been nominated for two awards at Sports Podcast Awards ceremony in February. So look out for that. They'll be back in the new year as well. Great. So that's it, Yoz. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to our uh, listeners. And we will speak to you next year when. Let's hope the cricket next year is as good as the cricket has been in 2023. We don't quite know where the game's going. It's you know it always feels, doesn't it? It's sort of in flux, but there's still enough to keep cricket enthusiasts engaged with our fantastic game yeah and of course England heading to India as soon as we're back in the new year they're, they're off to a, a pre-series camp in Abu Dhabi and then into the first test in India uh, about the 25th of January so we'll be back well before then to preview that series meantime again thanks very much for listening and happy new year to all of you Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.